0: Hello friend and welcome to Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm your host Alex Housen, a longtime medical writer who shifted from a career as a trauma OR nurse into academia and then transitioned from academia into freelance writing in continuing medical education. I've built a sustainable six-figure business that specializes in creating and evaluating educational content for health professionals. And I use my expertise in education and healthcare to guide rich, honest conversations about the practice of creating CME content with intention. And I teach medical writers how to create CME content with confidence. Write Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME. Come and join our thoughtful, provocative and valuable conversations about adult learning, teaching platforms, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME professional. Wherever you are in the content creation process, if your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Wright CME Pro a membership-driven community that provides skills, scaffolding, and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche. Or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Hello and welcome to the Write Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Housen. And before we jump into today's episode with our guest, Sapna Pandey, I wanted to give a shout out to Kerlinda who left a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Kerlinda says, "Excellent content and production. Superb listening for aspiring and seasoned medical and CME writers. The interviews are thoughtful, well balanced, and full of valuable information." Thank you, Alex, and thank you, Kerlinda. We really appreciate it when you leave a review for the podcast. It helps other listeners find us, and it helps us to help you in your CME content creation journey. And now on to today's episode, in which I'm having a conversation with Sapana Pandey, a medical education specialist with over two decades of experience. Sapana shares how her background in public health and evaluation research led her to work in medical education, particularly in areas of diversity, equity and inclusion, or DEI. Sapana emphasises the importance of integrating DEI policies into both continuing education for health professionals and continuing education workplaces. For instance, faculty policies represent one core area that can benefit from an integrated DEI approach that considers the characteristics of the people contributing expertise to the design and development of content. A simple statement that outlines the organization's commitment to DEI sets a foundation for ensuring that faculty members reflect diverse backgrounds and experiences. And we also explore how important self-evaluation and internal reflection are as crucial steps toward creating a more diverse and inclusive environment in continuing healthcare education. And in that context, Sapana cautions on how to avoid making the assumption that individuals from diverse backgrounds can speak for an entire group in general. And she emphasizes instead the value of cultivating channels to share diverse voices and opinions. Join us. Hello and welcome to Sapana Pandey who's joining us today on Right Medicine. Welcome.
1: Hi Alex, thanks for inviting me today.
0: No, it's good to see you. So let's start our conversation, as uh, I usually do, by, you know, my question to you is, please tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and the kind of work that you do.
1: Sure. So, you know, I've been in the medical education space for over two decades now. And I think like most people in this industry, I kind of just happened upon it and just ended up saying, which was ironic, because my educational background is Perfect for medical education. So when I was getting my master's in public health, you know, the areas that I was studying, and back then there was this new kind of novel idea, and that was that you can't just do programs. You actually have to assess what, it, if it's doing what you say it's doing. And they called it evaluation yeah. research. Right. You know, and they were also talking about physician behavior. And then the area that I specialized in, it was called socio-medical sciences. And this is the idea that uh, health is affected by social, economic, and cultural factors. And all of this, you know, this 20-plus years ago was kind of like a little fringe idea. Like, you know, it was all new. <sighs> and we didn't call it medical education. It was all in the public health realm. But, you know, that's what we do today. We do... Outcomes, uh, evaluations we do. We talk about physician behavior change. And the, the area that I'm most in, interested in is really talking about diversity and equity, you know, behavioral, uh, economic uh, factors that affect health and behavior change. So all of those things that I studied all that time ago that I thought had nothing to do with medical education is really what I've been kind of building towards today.
0: It's so interesting that uh, the way that your public health background has kind of informed where you are now. I guess, you know, I did some public health work back in the day as well. And I guess one of the things that interests me is, or I guess the flip side of what you're saying there, it's actually taken a long time for key concepts in public health to filter through to not just continuing medical education, but medical education uh, generally, is that something that you've th- that you've seen as well?
1: Yes, I mean, like I said, you know, this was twenty plus years ago, and uh, you know, they were talking about how sociocultural factors determine health, and now we call it, you know, social determinants of health. That's a key phrase that we use. You know, I don't think we were using that three or four years ago, and obviously, in the public health sector, they were using it, you know, a long time ago. So. Yes, it's it's been a little slow in getting there. But, you know, I think that's like with any other, you know, industry, there's a long time lag between academia and actually getting into like, you know, our day to day, you know, work that we do.
0: Oh, that's true. And certainly, yeah, slow diffusion for sure. You mentioned stumbling into CME. Can you share a little bit more about what that stumble involved?
1: Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, when I started back in the day, we used to do both CME and promotional medical education. And then when the big divide happened, where, you know, the industry said, you know, we really got to separate the two, they can't be together, I fell on the CME side. And I'm really glad I did because I love it, you know, have no desire to go back to the other side. But I think. There's a lot to be learned from both sides. I really, my personal feeling is that CME is ahead of the game. You know, we've been doing evaluation research way before the promotional side has. So there's a lot that they can learn from us. But also we can learn from them in that they've, you know, kind of taken the next level up in terms of the engagement and the technology and the visual quality of the work you know they've like they're steps ahead yeah. of us and so i think there's a lot to be learned from both sides in terms of the implementation the creation the practice you know obviously the two have to stay separated forever but there's a lot we can definitely learn from each side
0: it's interesting that you kind of mentioned the the promotional side of things i've i've been seeing online discussions here and there about the promotional side starting to use the language of evaluation in a way that I haven't really seen seen before. Are you, from what you've seen, from what you've heard, is the promotional side taking a similar approach to evaluation that continuing medical ed- education does? Or is it using, you know, kind of different frameworks, different models?
1: Definitely different frameworks and they're baby steps. So They are Mm. starting to evaluate, you know, they're starting to get some basic, what we would call probably Moore's one, two, maybe level three outcomes. They're not really talking about knowledge and behavior change yet, but they're talking about satisfaction and Mm. participation. So they're, they're getting there, but hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll join our ranks in terms of talking about, you know, more Behavior level it changes.
0: So, you know, talking about things that the CME community is is talking about is is discussing. You know, I think it's fair to say, and we were talking about this just a little bit before we we hit record, that the CME community hasn't, until recently, kind of really explicitly engaged with representation and issues of diversity, equity, or inclusion. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of how DEI is, is being handled by the CME community? Mm-hmm.
1: So yes, DEI is hot. Everybody's talking about it, not just the CME community. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, celebrities are talking about it. The TV shows I'm watching, like that's a major plot point now. You know, companies are talking about it. Interesting for pride month i've seen many companies update their logo to include the pride flag so everybody's talking di it's very hot at recent conferences i've attended there've been multiple sessions and presentations talking about di which is great because mm. 5 years ago you would be pressed to find even one session at these places right yeah yeah i do caution though you know two things one is that we're not going into the performative allyship realm where We're talking about it. We're putting it on social media, but not actually doing anything. So, Mm -hmm. for those who are not familiar with the term performative allyship, that's when like an individual or an organization, you know, professes support for a marginalized group, but then, then they don't follow through with anything actionable. And you see a lot of that. You know, folks are talking about it. They're, you know, putting the pride flag up. They're, celebrating, you know, whatever the month is, is it API heritage month? Is it pride month? They're, you know, putting up statements about that, but are they actually following through on that? And we've seen this as a trend just overall, you know, after George Floyd, a lot of companies came out, made statements, they promised to put in dollars that they were going to make all these efforts. And then research shows that actually, you know, two years following that, that a lot of those dollars have not actually been spent. And at this time, we're actually mm. seeing a decline in the number of diversity equity officers that had been previously hired are now being let go. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, we want to make sure we're, you know, we're avoiding that performative allyship. The other thing I'm a little concerned about is that you know, we're putting so much stuff out on DEI and we're talking so much about it that we're going to put our learners into DEI fatigue. You know, there's just so much of it. At a recent conference I was at, there was so many of these activities that there wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was still a lot of interest, but there were so many activities and sessions to go to that they weren't filling up. But the regular topics, the topics that everybody wants to talk about, you know, uh, accreditation, adult learning, faculty disclosures, those sessions were packed because there wasn't enough of those. So I think we need to be careful that as we talk about DEI, we're not overdoing it. And, you know, I think one of the solutions is we need to incorporate the discussion of DEI into, you know, everything else. So if we're talking accreditation, it should be part of that discussion. We're talking about adult learning principles. It's part of that discussion. It shouldn't be just a separate element of it. And I think we can avoid that DEI fatigue if we make sure we incorporate it into the overall planning and development of education.
0: And so what's the starting point for, for that, Sapana? You know, thinking about the education planning process in CME, how do you see DEI being grounded in that planning process, do you, can you share sort of actionable steps that practitioners can take to make sure that it's not, it's not performative?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I often ask people is a quick exercise and I'll say, okay, if you were planning an educational activity, who would be your team? Imagine who's on your team. You're thinking your medical writer, your, maybe your creative director, your project manager, you know, Everybody you would need on your team to have a successful activity. Now look around the, the table, and I ask: Is half of those people people who would identify as people of color? And the reason I say half is if you just look at the U.S. demographic, anywhere from fifty to forty percent, depending on how you define a person of color, would be in that person of color category. And the response I find from most people is is no. Most of the people sitting at that table would not identify, or would not, you know, pass the the fifty percent number. Mm-hmm. So we have to think: who is creating education? Who are the folks working behind the scene who are writing, who are creating, who are ensuring that the content we're creating is representative of all the different voices? So I think that's one of the things we really need to look at internally. You know, if it's possible, if you have the ability to affect hiring at your company, make sure you have diverse teams. But if not, Mm -hmm. there are other things you can still do. One is look at the freelancers that you work with. Consider hiring Mm -hmm. a more diverse freelance group. Consider the uh, vendors that you work with. You know, make sure that maybe they can bring in the diverse voices that you're lacking. Maybe invite people outside of the team. Like, maybe you can invite somebody from your accounting team who usually doesn't work on, you know, project specifics, but maybe they can be part there to add a voice. So it's really important that the people creating the education also is a very diverse group. And when I say diverse, I think people automatically think of, uh, you know, racial diversity. But, you know, there's a lot of different types of diversity. We're talking about gender Racial diversity, sexual orientation, body types, uh, neurodiversity. So th- there's a lot of diversity. And yes, you're not going to get somebody to represent every one of those groups. But what you want to avoid is having a monolithic group where it's everybody is the same type of person who is also creating the content. So, you know, that's the first step I say, look inwardly. The other thing is look outwardly. Who are your faculty? So who's representing your content? Mm -hmm. You know, have do you have a diverse faculty panel? And again, that goes into gender diversity, racial diversity, age diversity as well. So all of these things you want to think of as you're developing this education. You know, there are tools that can help you. But I always say the first thing you want to do is look internally. One of the things I do caution against though is don't think that if somebody is of a diverse background that they can now speak for either that entire group or just marginalized groups in general. Because A, they may not have the expertise or B, they may not want to be, you know, Mm -hmm. the speaker of their people. So make sure, you know, you're not putting in that position unless they want to. But even if they don't want to, that's okay because just having diverse voices coming in, sharing opinions. And, and they've shown this through research that having more diversity actually increases the quality of your product. And you can ensure that, you know, you're, you're having better quality education that you're producing.
0: And are you seeing? Um, a shift in this direction. So what you're describing are, you know, two very kind of clear strategies that, uh, you know, CME organizations can take to improve representation. Are you seeing much of this in practice?
1: So I I do see it in the faculty area. A lot of folks Mm -hmm. are much more aware of that. And it's coming from different directions. Um, Faculty themselves you know, are asking for diversity. So many top name faculty actually have come out publicly and said they're not going to be part of a manual. So if they get invited to be part of a manual, and manual means all male panel, that they're going to decline that invitation. And then societies, many of the medical societies, AMA, Lancet, if you can look them up, they have set some Mm -hmm. faculty policies that says, you know, uh, that has to have gender diversity in the faculty. So they're already asking that that is a requirement of the education that's being created. The area that I think is a little slower in the uptake is really getting that diverse voice in the planners themselves. And and I understand that, that that's gonna take time because you can't just uproot your workforce and, you know, turn them over overnight. That's gonna take a little more time. Mm-hmm. But I definitely do see it with, you know, faculty who we work with that people are starting to make sure that, you know, they're not having an all-male panel anymore.
0: And I'll make sure to include some links in the show notes to some of the things that you mentioned there. I know that Lancet recently wrote about manals in particular. And you and I can have a conversation off-air about some other tools or resources that might be helpful to be in the in the show notes. And and just to kind of pop in here to listeners to say if you're listening on uh Spotify, I, I have a question for you, which is if you work in a medical edu- a continuing medical education company, are you already starting to implement uh DEI policies in your workplace uh setting? Let us let us know because we're kind of interested to hear more about what's going on there in the workplace. So you've you've shared about looking inward and looking outward, talking very much here about the the characteristics of people in the room and the people who are contributing expertise to the design and development of content. You mentioned writers and designers a little bit earlier. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that that writers and designers and maybe some other practitioners too can do to actually broaden representation in the content itself so for instance uh, patient cases are something that are used a lot in continuing medical education as a very active and granular way to get learners to actively think and problem solve and, and make clinical decisions around what are some of the things that that writers and designers can do to make sure that there's broader representation in in cases and other types of educational content? Mm -hmm.
1: So cases really are the easiest way to go. Like, you know, if we can diversify cases. And I think we're pretty good about including diversity when it comes to disease-specific areas that affects certain populations. So, you know, if you look up an education about, let's say, hypertension, which is uh, highly prevalent in Black Mm -hmm. men, you're most likely going to see a Black patient in one of the cases. The things that we can do is think about some of the other areas of way to diversify. How can we make the cases look like our community, the people that we work with, and all the different communities that we work with? And these are simple things you can do. So use some diverse names. Instead of your patient who's John Smith, maybe consider using names like Abdul or Yim or Priya, names that are, you know, different. When you're talking about marital status, mention maybe uh, one of the patients is in a same sex relationship. Have patients or even your healthcare provider who's represented on screen. Cause a lot of times we use images, we use actors. You know, they can be of different ability that have nothing to do with the disease state. So they may be in a wheelchair. They may be wearing a headscarf. They may have, uh, different body sizes. So this way you're having representation of all the different types of people, different skin tones. And then you can find, there are actually lots of websites and resources that cater to finding actors, images, videos that represent di- diverse groups. And Google is your friend here. All you have to do is type in diverse images. A lot of platforms, you know, websites will come up but there are places that specifically cater to finding images, actors, situations, you know, black women in tech. You want to find images that are probably not as common. You can find it. There's a whole website dedicated to black women in tech. You want to find images of gender nonconforming actors in various life situations. You can find those. So by diversifying both your patients as well as the healthcare provider that's represented on screen, we're really inviting the learners to say, this is our community, they're all different types, and also give them the opportunity to see themselves on screen as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. cases, I say, this is the easiest way that you can do. You don't have to hire anybody. You know, you're not spending resources. You're doing whatever you already would have done. You're just thinking. Let's add a little more diversity to this. So
0: visuals, uh, language, patient characteristics—those are three kind of clear areas where it's very approachable and accessible to kind of bake diversity in. Are there are there mindset shifts that people might need to make in order to really hold diversity front and and center? Are you? Do you And and I guess another way of asking that question is: Do you see pushback anywhere uh, in terms of broadening representation in education?
1: So yes, the pushback that I see is more of it is we will try. So that's that's the word I get a lot: we, we will try, we will try to have diversity, we'll try to do that. And you know, as I say in the the infamous words of the famous Yoda, it's do do not. There is no try, and right. I think back. You know, when Board of Ed, you know, Board of Ed versus Brown happened. If they said try to integrate schools, do you think that would have happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the try doesn't work. We have to make a commitment, and I do find people who make that commitment are able to stand by it. You know, make very doable commitments. If you say we're going to have diver- uh, gender diversity in our faculty. of our faculty will be at least women or non-cis faculty. Then you're going to make a commitment to look for those faculty. When you're sitting at a discussion table and say, who should we pick for our faculty? That's going to be top of mind. And I think that's what we Mm -hmm. need to do. Right now, we we get a lot of the we will try. If, If there's a choice between Faculty A, who's a male and faculty B, who's a female, will pick faculty B. But unless you're like, you you know, you're, you're putting yourself to the fire and saying, we have to make sure that at least 50% of our faculty are women or non-cis faculty, you're not going to actively be searching for that. So yes, there is a pushback. And I always say push back on that and say, make the commitment. Once you make the commitment, you can do it. And, you know, I, I always say, we're not going to change. You know, we're not asking you as an individual to change the world. We're asking you to make a small commitment to make a small change, and and these are very doable. A fifty percent uh, gender diversity in our faculty is something that is very doable. Making a commitment to hire a, a women-owned freelancer that is doable. Mm. You know, saying you're going to hire your next freelancer and make sure that you know they're a person of color—that's doable. So making these small commitments and actually following through on them, I say it's doable. You can do it. But yes, there's absolutely pushback on it, and and I get the 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 lot of a we will try.
0: And you know, in in some of the organizations that you that you see and that that, you, that you've worked with are there particular people in those organizations for whom it makes most sense to champion you know the 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 commitment to diversity in the organization because i'm sure that you know there will be some people who are listening who who want to be that champion but their role and the responsibilities that they have doesn't necessarily kind of uh, you know, automatically put them in the in the foreground or make them the obvious candidate. So, can you can you speak to that a little bit in terms of who should be pushing this in an organization? And if it's not being pushed, how can people identify themselves as the person who needs to be the diversity champion? Yeah.
1: So, I really think it's everybody's responsibility. Unless you're part of a large enough organization where you have an entire department dedicated to addressing issues of diversity, which I think in for most companies and organizations in the CME field, they're on the smaller side. So they're not going to have that kind of level of committed person or department addressing this. It really falls on whoever champions it. So it really can be anybody. It can be the project manager it can be you know the accountant it can be the meeting planner whoever feels strongly enough and says we should do something really can and should do it now getting buy in from all your stakeholders yeah. that's a whole different conversation you know and and there are strategies on you know how you get buy in from stakeholders and and that that's applicable to anything you do right you're you're trying to get buy in from those you know your supervisors, those who make financial decisions. So, you know, that's something we, we do with any kind of work that we do. But really, it, there isn't a specific person, like a role to champion DEI. Like I said, DEI is a fairly recent conversation. So there are actually very mm-hmm. few people who have the expertise and the training in this area that have been doing it for, you know, for decades. So anybody who champions it, it's, it's a new, uh, you know, new effort that they're going to be bringing up. So I would say if you're interested in it, bring it up. In majority of cases, I find stakeholders are interested. They like the idea. They know that there's value in it. Not saying they wouldn't push back with the try, (laughs) you know, versus the commitment. But they do like the idea of doing something. So it is very unlikely that you'll get pushback saying, no, we're not going to champion this at all. It's just a matter of how much effort they're willing to put into it.
0: Do you think CME organizations need, you know, a kind of clear, <coughs> excuse me, diversity, equity and inclusion officer or somebody in that role whose, whose job it is to, to really kind of push DEI forward?
1: No, no. So I actually, I'm a big promo- proponent saying that DEI needs to be part of the education that we create. So you know, as experts in CME, we have to understand accreditation. We have to understand, you know, outcomes and more. We have to understand adult learning, and it's just part of what we what we do. And I think part of that is we have to understand DEI. are we going to be experts in every one of those aspects? Probably not. And that's fine. But I think, you know, as planners and developers, we really need to integrate DEI overall and understand it overall. By siloing it and having an expert and uh, and uh, another person, you know, trying to do this, I think we run the risk of it being the first thing on the chopping board. So when when your budgets are cut, Mm when financially uh, things are going, taking a downturn, when you're crunched for time, the first thing to go will be what's easy to exercise out of your project. And if somebody else is managing that aspects, that will be the first thing to go. So I'm a big proponent. It needs to be part of the overall integrated effort. And it needs to be everyday folks, you know, the people who are rolling up the sleeves and actually getting the work done need to have a certain level of understanding of DEI.
0: Are there things that we haven't talked about or that, you know, I haven't kind of explicitly asked about that are important in thinking about DEI in continuing medical education?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think we talked about faculty and faculty mm-hmm. policies. That's another area that I, you know, really feel strongly about that it's, it's very easy to integrate. Make sure you have faculty policies. And the thing is, you don't have to create it. Somebody else already has. You know, like I said, Lancet has a great no manuals policy. You could just probably, you know, read it up, you know, adapt it for your organization. There's a lot of resources out there. The Alliance has actually created, uh, put together a list of resources that other organizations have put together. So if you go on their website, look under resources, you'll find a bunch of resources and tools that can help you. So I always say somebody else has done it already. We just have to find it and utilize it to make it work for us. So we'll make
0: sure that there are links uh, in the show notes to, to the Alliance for sure. And to kind of wrap up our conversation, to somebody who's listening today and thinking about, yeah, this is something that we're not doing in our organization. This is something that uh, we should be doing. Are there three steps that somebody could take right now today to start the process of really integrating DEI into all the different activities and steps that go into planning and designing and implementing and delivering continuing medical education? Sure.
1: So, you know, I love to give people doable achievable uh, goals. You know, something that you can go back and start right away. And the faculty policies are probably the easiest. Set up a faculty Mm -hmm. policy, a simple statement. It can be a one-line statement saying you will not have an all-male panel, that you'll have some level of gender diversity. That's the easiest one. Have that conversation internally with your stakeholders, say, can we implement a uh, faculty policy? The second is diversify your cases. And again, easy one, you don't have to hire new people to do it. Just look at the content you're currently creating, you know, your medical writers who are writing your cases, your art directors who are creating the cases, you know, ask them if they would be willing to, you know, make sure that the images that we're putting forth, the videos that we're putting forth, have diverse images in there. So that's the easiest one. And then thirdly, you know, Have a little uh, self evaluation. Look internally, see who your organization is, see who you're working with and think about, you know, what can you do? Sometimes, you know, that, that's a difficult discussion to be having with yourself and saying, okay, what can I do? Is it possible to do uh, anything? But I think recognizing where you are and if there, you know, if you need help, I think, I feel like that's the first step, that um, you need to be able to identify where are your challenges and that where you would like to go. Now, you know, how long it takes you to get there and the effort and resources it takes you to get there, that's a different discussion. But, you know, the mm-hmm. first step, have an internal look. Look at yourself, look at your organization, say, do we need to make changes?
0: And well, that's a good place to wrap up for today. Sabana, pande educator, public health advocate, and a DEI champion, if I may call you that. <laughs> thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right
1: Medicine. And thank you, Alex, for having this opportunity to chat today.
0: Yeah, it's lovely having you on the show. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website, where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write, W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.